Today's scriptures is from the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 19, verses 3 to 8. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and said before them all the words that uh, the Lord has commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answers back to the Lord. This is the uh, word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ernest. Thank you, and duty for praying. And uh, this is one, two, three, four, fourth week of God's story, our story series. Um, so it, it builds upon each other. So do uh, listen to the past um, sermons. Um, but let's pray that God will speak to us today. Lord, we thank you that we're not alone in this world, or that you do not leave us in our sin and our death but you had a plan to save us. And we pray that as we come to these texts and when we see your plan being unfolded, Lord, help us to see your greatness and your grace that we might live our lives in the light of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Archbishop Thomas Beckett was martyred by, uh, while defending the rights of the church against King Henry II. But before becoming the Archbishop of Canterbury, he was actually good friends with King Henry II. Um, he was known for uh, his fine clothing and parties that were extravagant. Uh, he was an avid hunter. He would get, go out with his aristocratic friends, including the king, and hang out with them. So when King Henry II needed somebody in the post of the Archbishop of Canterbury while he was having some trouble against the Rome, the, 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 the Roman Church, he thought it was a good idea to appoint his friend to be the Archbishop of Canterbury so that he would have a loyal ally by his side. But something happened when Beckett was ordained. He had a spiritual awakening. He felt a strong sense of calling from God to defend the church and the gospel. And he changed. He, for, he, 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 he rejected all the, the, the lavish parties and banquets and things like that, and he became kind of an ascetic. He, uh, he dressed uh, modestly. He was known to go out to wash the feet of the poor. And, uh, and of course, he, uh, uh, instead of feasts, he fasted often. He became a man of God who really, truly defended the church and he became a prophetic voice against the king. Beckett 
in fact, became so troublesome. And while he was drinking, the king, Henry II, exclaimed famously, Who will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? And four knights took this as an order and went and murdered uh, Archbishop Beckett at the Canterbury Cathedral. By all accounts, Beckett's life was transformed when he was ordained. He did nothing to deserve the ordination. He did nothing to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. But when he did, that call was so powerful that it transformed him as a, as a person. Friends, that surprisingly is the pattern for the Christian life as well. We haven't done anything to receive the call to be his people, to be his children. children. We haven't done anything to deserve it, and yet God calls us. And that call of grace is what transforms us. It transforms us from slaves into a kingdom of holy priesthood. We become God's people, representative of God to the world. And the main way then... We, uh, we should live is to point to the one who transformed us, one who has called us, one who has given us that grace. So we're rescued first. We're a nation of holy priesthood, and we point to the rescuer. Last week, we heard about the promise that God made to Abraham. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll make you into a great name. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'll give you this land, and you will be a source of blessing to the whole nations, whole world. But Abraham, as we saw, didn't actually see the fulfillment of these blessings. He lived as a nomad. He lived in tents. In fact, by end of Genesis, two generations later, his descendants hadn't seen the fulfillment of the promise. In fact, they're once again in exile in Egypt, hungry because of the famine, depending on the wealth of another nation. And in Exodus 1, the the Hebrew people who then moved to Egypt, well, now they're enslaved. They become slaves, and they are groaning in their toil. And in that slavery is the context of God's rescue God, chapter 2, verse 24, God heard the groaning, and he remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Why does God rescue Abraham, uh, God rescue Israelites? It's because he remembered the covenant with Abraham, which in Old Testament language means he acted. He he remembered and acted uh, on the promise made to Abraham. And you know the story, the ten plagues and the Passover and crossing of the Red Sea. And out of this uh, the slavery, he brings them out and they become a nation and his people. And God then brings them to the foot of the mountain. And that is what we see in our reading, Exodus chapter 19. At the foot of the mountain, God then gives them the law. In chapter 20 and on, he'll give them the Ten Commandments and all the other commands and, and, and for them to know how to behave as God's people. And here is what we read in chapter 19 is sort of a precursor to that, the introduction to the Ten Commandments. And this is what he says. God tells them, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me, he's about to give the law, and this is important, But before giving the law, he reminds them what he did. I rescued you out of the eagle's wing. 
many people say that the Old Testament is all about obedience to the law uh, and not about grace. New Testament reveals God's grace and love. But you see, this is not the shape of this rescue. Grace came first. The rescue came first. Out of the eagle's wings, I rescued you. They were enslaved people. They weren't great people making a great name for themselves. But God rescued them anyway because he was faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham. Because God is gracious and compassionate, God rescued them first. And then he's about to give the law. Grace is first. The rescue comes first. And if God gives the law to us, it is so that we know how to live as God's people, not to be rescued, to be God's people, to to become God's people. And this really is different from all other religions in the world out there. In Chekung Temple, we see people praying and offering their sacrifice to to their gods, just hoping. They don't know, actually, if gods will accept your sacrifices or not. They just go and pray and offer sacrifices, hoping that the God would uh, look on, uh, on them with favor. They don't know. But the, the shape is that they do things first for God, hoping that God would return the favor to them. And that's how all the other religions in the world work, right? Whether it's Egyptian polytheism, and Moses' days, or Chinese folk religion, Korean folk religion, people act first, and then God may respond to what you do. In fact, we think like this, even as a Christian, and that question is asked, right? If God, uh, God's grace comes first, God's rescue comes before uh, we do anything, what then, why should I do good things? Why should I obey God? Well, you see the assumption behind that question. If you've asked that question, you think that you need to do something to deserve God's goodness and God's grace on your life. Right? That's why you're asking, well, if God, God's grace comes first, well, why should I do things for God anyway? It's so ingrained in us, this religiosity, us doing something for God, when that is not the shape of the Bible, That is not the pattern of God's grace upon our life. Again and again, God's pattern is different. Grace comes first. We saw that in the creation. Why did God create the world? Well, because God is gracious. Because God is good. Out of the abundance of His grace, God creates the world, and He now says, live in it as my people. We saw that in Abraham. Why was Abraham called Well, not because he was good, not because he was a Yahweh worshiper, but because God is gracious. God calls Abraham out of the nations and says, you are going to be blessed. You are going to be my people. And the pattern here is exactly the same. I rescued you upon eagles' wings and now act as my people, behave as my people. So the Ten Commandments works exactly the same way. If you have your Bibles open, chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, the introduction to the first commandment is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So you shall have no gods before me. I delivered you, so you should worship me. Church, why do you obey God? Why do you do the things that you do? Is it because you want to win 
God's favor? Is it because you want good health and wealth for yourselves and for your children, for God to bless you? Um, um, you want to make it to heaven. Church, you're rescued by God's grace. Even though you did not deserve it, that's who God is. God calls you to himself and says, you are mine, and now live as my people. Of course, the obedience, you know, on the superficial level looks the same, but underneath, the, the motivation makes all the difference. If you obey because of legalism, because you want to earn God's favor, or you want to uh, uh, put God in debt so that God has to do what you say because of your goodness, well, you're all constantly going to be looking to see what must I do? How much do I need to do? You're all constantly counting how much that you should do. How much money should I give? How much, how, what, what, uh, how, much, um, how much time should I spend in charity and work and, uh, and whatnot? And we look down on others who are not doing as much as us if we're thinking like this. We're constantly thinking about how much we have done. Of course, those who are living out of God's grace is, well, they're gracious. <laughs> they go above and beyond. Um, they, they're not looking for loopholes. Um, they pursue holiness not because they have to, but because they want to. And, because, and they're gracious to those who are failing. I was trying to think of an uh, example. Zacchaeus is the main example of this, one of the clearest examples of this. Zacchaeus, the moment that Jesus goes into his house, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. You know what he does? His life is transformed, not because Jesus said, you should do this. No, as Jesus entered his house, he realizes the grace that God is bestowing upon him, and his life is transformed by that grace. And he says, I'll give half of my possessions. And if I've cheated anyone, I won't just pay back double-fold, which is the requirement of law, but fourfold to anyone that I've cheated. He's doing it joyfully. He's doing it because he wants to. He's going above and beyond because his heart has been transformed by the grace of God. God's grace leads and that's what really transforms us. And that's what makes Christianity so unique. That God has called each one of us, not because we're good, but in our sin, God has called us and says, said, you are mine. You are my child. Now live in relationship to me, your king. Church, is that the motivation of why you do the things that you do, God's grace in your life, God's grace that has transformed your heart, or is it something else? Well, God's grace comes first, and then it gives us a new identity. It makes a nation of slaves into a nation of the kingdom of holy priesthood, but not for them, as we saw last week, but for the sake of the world. God told Abraham that he would be a source of blessing for the world. All the nations will be blessed through you. And the mission is the same for the Israelites here as well. God told them in verses 5 to 6, You shall be my treasured possessions amongst all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There'll be a nation of priests, 
And priest function is to represent God to the world, to teach God, uh, to teach the world, uh, teach outsiders who, what God is like. And that's what we are called to do. And their call is missional. And ESV, I've uh, put ESV up here because it uh, uh, underscores the, the missional aspect better. You shall be my treasured possession amongst all nations, for all the earth is mine. Not because Israelites special as a nation, but because the, all the earth is his. He chooses one nation and says, look, you be my representative. You be the priesthood. You be priests who teach the world. For the sake of the world, I'm going to choose you to show the world what I am like, what being blessed by me is like, to being in a relationship with me is like. God chose Israel for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the whole world. We're chosen to be priest, holy priesthood for the sake of the world as well. But in order to be a blessing for the world, we have to be distinct from the world. We can't just be the same as everybody else. This means living distinctly, differently from the rest of the world. A theologian says that we're, living, we're called uh, to live differently from the nations for the nations. From the nations for the nations. And chapters 20 and on will give us a way to do that. God's law is given that makes us distinct. And that law covers really every aspect of life. I mean, you see it in Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments concerns relationship with God, but relationship with work, our family, our, our wife, our tongue, and then it goes on. The rest of the law, is, it has commandments about uh, our social responsibility, responsibility toward, towards the poor, how to take care of the land, how to, uh, uh, the, the year of the jubilee, uh, debt, uh, social policy, economic policy, they're all there. Every aspect of life is touched by God's law, and God says, you ought to be my people in every area of your life. Famously, an apostle Peter turns to this passage and applies it to Christian. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. World says that religion should be relegated to your private sphere. You can think whatever you want, but you shouldn't be, it shouldn't be public. That is profoundly not Christian idea. We cannot separate any part of our life and say this is private and this is public. No, all of our life is lived in relationship to God. Dutch theologian Abram Kuyper, who was also once a prime minister of the Netherlands, he wrote, there's not a square inch, in the ho- square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, o- sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. Every aspect of our life is Christ. God's law covers all us aspects. We are to live differently in every single way. Last week, many of you were there in Hannah and Willie's uh, wedding. Many of us were there to support them. Uh, And here's the thing. This marriage is a missional marriage, right? They must live out God's design, not just for them to enjoy God's design for their life, but for the sake of the world, 
for the sake of Hong Kong, for the sake of uh, people who are looking for love in this world and who cannot find it. Their marriage is missional. Why? Because last year, in 2022, the divorce rate in Hong Kong was measured to be 60%. Now, this is, the statistics are a bit skewed. The way they measure this is a bit... Uh, but the point is, many marriages fail. 40, I think the real statistic is more like 40%. 40% of all marriages fail. Why? The thing is, people want to love be known, uh, to, to love another and be known, uh, to be loved. We want to do that. They, their heart is longing for it, but they don't know how to love one another. People don't know how to be committed to one another when feelings go away, when life gets difficult, um, all these things. They don't know how to love each other. So Willie and Hannah, actually, I don't know. I, get, don't, I don't see them here. But, <laughs> well, it's not just their marriage. For all of you who are married, your marriage is missional. You, you, we ought to love one another as Christ loved the church and obey him because the, the world needs to see that this love exists, that it's possible, that sort of self-sacrificial love that lays down one's life for the other is possible, and it happens because God is here. Our life has this missional aspect, and that's just one area. Christians need to be distinct in every area, in our gender and sexual ethics, as we've seen a couple of weeks back. Even if we're called bigoted as a result, we need to be distinct. We need to be distinct in our generosity. You know, the Old Testament, if you ca- calculate all the sacrifices, it gives up, people are supposed to give about 23% of their income, 23%. That would set us apart, wouldn't it? If we were that generous to one another and to the needy uh, in the world? See, this isn't about big things either. You know, it's about how we treat one another, how we relate to each other, whether we're nice to each other, whether we forgive one another, whether we keep going when somebody offends us. Actually, that brings into uh, my second point. Uh, remember that this isn't an individual mission. This is a collective mission. We're called to be a kingdom. We are called to be together in doing this as a people of God. And Jesus taught the same thing. Jesus said, you're light of the world. And people think you're light of the world means that we need to be distinct as individual lights. But the very next verse, I mean, the next sentence goes, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. We are that town. We are that city of God that exists here on earth. We are a people of God, a nation, holy nation, holy priesthood. Uh, I know that it sounds like, I sound like a broken record here when I say this, but church isn't an optional extra. These relationships that you form with one another, that's not optional extra. That is what God is doing here on earth. Uh, you know, I think if you think about what's happening in the world, the world needs this, doesn't it? Hamas, Israelites, Palestinians, Israelites fighting at a war. Uh, people have gone, ethnicities have gone to war again and again throughout our history. But here, they're Japanese, Koreans, Chinese, Filipinos, whatever you are, we are that God's community 
Here, we ought to love one another across, across nationalities, across political differences. Here, we're a kingdom of God. This is a communal mission that we have been given as the people of God. And here's another thing about this, being a community. The world wants to be a community, doesn't it? They are seeking. People are lonely. 2018, then Prime Minister Theresa May of England created a cabinet post in the UK called the Minister for Loneliness. She cited a study that said that loneliness is as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Ironically, in this generation where people are most connected, people are also very lonely. They're struggling with depression. They're struggling with loneliness. What they want is a community, but they don't know how to get it. They don't know how to be a community. They don't know how to commit. They don't know how to sacrifice. They don't know how to bear with one another. They don't know how to carry one another's burdens. They don't know how to forgive. In other words, they don't know how to love. And here in the church, that's what God has given us to do, the mission to love one another, to be a community that shows the world that this community is possible. Jesus prays uh, for unity, that you all may be one. We all must be one, not for our sake only, not because being a community is such a good thing for us. It is a good thing for us. But the world out there needs to know that this is possible, that we can love one another, that loving community is possible. Church, that's our calling. Will you be a part of it? The coffee hours here, links groups, chats afterwards, lunch after the church, these are just as important as time of preaching because that is where God is at work in bringing us together. But even as we carry on this mission, we also know that we're inadequate, that we can't do it fully by ourselves. So we must point to our rescuer. I don't know if this condition in verse 5 made you uncomfortable. If you obey me fully. And we saw how people responded in verse 8. They say, we will. We will do everything you say. We will do everything the Lord has said. And, you know, the covenant goes on, chapter 20 all the way to chapter 24. And there, once again, Moses reads out, uh, reads out loud the whole thing. Chapter 24, verse 7, they once again say to God and to people, we will do everything that the Lord has said. Then Moses takes the blood of sacrifice, and he then takes the blood and he sprinkles it on, his, on the people. Actually, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham did a similar thing, cutting the, uh, the, the animals in half. What they're saying is this, that this promise is a covenantal promise with a condition. If it's broken, the penalty will be death. The penalty will be death. It's as serious as that. Death is the penalty. That was the covenant ceremony. That's what they were affirming. But we know the Israelites, Israel never fulfilled the the covenant condition. And actually, Christians are no better. Even with the help of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, even with the grace poured out to us through Jesus Christ, we also fail all the time as well. So here's the thing about the laws. 
They reveal God's standards. They reveal the sinfulness of our hearts, but they also revealed the need for a Savior, somebody who will do this. Of course, that's the, the part of God's continuing story. 15, about 1,500 years later, Jesus came. And Jesus does this curious thing. He gets baptized. Why? Why does he get baptized? He is saved or he is pronounced as God's son when the water of baptism comes because he is Israel going through the waters of Red Sea. And just as Israel spent 40, day, uh, 40 years uh, out in the wilderness, Jesus, after he gets baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, spends 40 days um, in the wilderness, being tempted in every way, but not failing. You see, Jesus is the true Israel who fulfills the condition of the covenant. But he takes the penalty of breaking the covenant for us. So on the night before he died, he took the bread, he broke it and said, this is my body. He takes the cup of wine and says, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. And he sheds that blood for us because we broke the covenant. God's covenant becomes unconditional for us only because Jesus kept the covenant fully. So our job in all of this is to point to Christ and not to ourselves. And honestly, I do see the best of our church people do this. Do this. Those who seem most godly, those who, you know, come to church all the time, they do all the work, live out godly lives at home and at workplace, but they're the most humble ones, aren't they? The people who are most godly are constantly people who say, actually, it's not me. I am a broken person. I'm a saved sinner. My Savior is Jesus. They're constantly pointing to Jesus Christ. And they do that in their failures as well. They're quick to admit when they have gone wrong and when they, uh, they confess and they apologize because it's not about them anyway. And they point to Jesus in their goodness and in their failures because they know their mission. It's not to point to ourselves, but to Jesus who has rescued us. Friends, we are rescued first. We have been ordained uh, by the waters of baptism, all of you. You are now a nation of priests, a holy nation. Your mission is to bless the world out there. Friends, live distinctive lives. Distinctive lives, constantly pointing to our Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this continuing story. Um, we thank you for the way in which you have, from the very beginning, shown grace and mercy in your creation, in our fall, in the calling of Abraham, in the Exodus. Lord, we thank you that we, your unworthy people, are now called to be your people, and not just your normal people, but a holy priesthood, people who enjoy your blessings, people who teach the world who you are. Lord, help us to become more like Jesus so that we might be able to do that better. Help us in our failures to point to Jesus so that people would know that there is a hope in this world. There is a Savior that has come for them as well. 
Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would make us your people who fulfill your mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.